This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. In an earlier show, Marcus and I had the opportunity to discuss the topic of historic preservation. We spoke with Mr. Claude Coleman, who, along with others, has been working to preserve and rehabilitate the historic Rabbits Hotel in Asheville. Those of you living in Asheville have no doubt witnessed the ongoing work around that project. To open that show, we referenced Winston Churchill, who once said of historic places that initially we shape our buildings. Thereafter, our buildings shape us. Today, we're going to take another look at historic preservation across the state of North Carolina. Joining us in this conversation will be Miss Michelle Lanier, the di- director of the North Carolina Division of State Historic Sites. So thank you for joining us today. Marcus and I are always happy to be back here in the studio, back in conversation with you all. So glad that you all are taking the time to join us again for what Marcus, I believe, will be another interesting show. I don't know how this has happened, but we seem to spend a lot of time talking about history. Um, And I know that you have said that we historians are quite arrogant, but, you know, I have pulled you over into the history field, but you have become quite the historian in a very short period of time. But here we're back on history and historic preservation again. Yeah, well, there's no it's no accident how that happened. This is just this is this is a this is an example of a historian being a historian. (laughs) Um, But uh, no, you know, I I think uh, there's a reason that uh, we keep returning to the question of uh, really, I think, in essence of historical meaning, right? I think that's probably beneath all of the conversations that we've been having about uh, historic sites, historic preservation, um, questions around identity, all that I think converges on not only the question of history, but how history participates in a very direct way in creating uh, meaningful worlds for ourselves in the present. And so um, I I don't expect to ever leave the prison of history. (laughs) (laughs) Well, got his shot in. That's good. You know, but, you know, in this this relationship that you and I have been in, this ongoing conversation about around issues that are related to history, uh, historic preservation, just about where we are, not only as a community, as a state, as a nation. I mean, it's been, I think, a, a mutual kind of back and forth between the two of us because I've learned so much from you. I think that Marcus, while you don't, you're not in the history field per se, more in religious studies, I've always found you to be a very, uh, a very uh, keen historian um, and in the work that you've always done. So I think that I've learned a lot from you and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you've learned a lot from this process with me. But, you know, we, we always take the time when we start these shows to, to wish our audience well. We hope that they're they're staying healthy and, and safe. You know, we are coming through this period. It looks like we're moving out of this period of uh, coming through a major pandemic. I think that people are happy about that. I know that I am. It's nice to be able to go out at least now without a mask on uh, all mm-hmm. the time. So but we do hope that everyone is doing well. 
Marcus and I continue to appreciate hearing from you. Marcus, I've been watching our numbers, especially on our Facebook site uh, for the Waters and Harvey show. The numbers are going up. More and more people are discovering the show, not just out there in the Western North Carolina region, but kind of across the state. So it's great to be hearing from people as well. We're getting messages from you all, questions that you're raising. Some are just saying, you know, we just really love the show. So Mm -hmm. it's great to hear from you all from time to time. And I'm sure, Marcus, you're probably probably running into people being out there who are probably still talking about how they enjoy yeah. these conversations. Yeah, and, and what that what that um, indicates to me is um, ongoing engagement, right, mm-hmm. on the part of our of our listening audience. Uh, and that I think is one of the primary goals of the show, right? Mm-hmm. To 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 create and um, uh, sort of stimulate conversation, mm-hmm. ongoing conversation that will keep people engaged and so you know whenever whenever you receive feedback from folks in the community um or out where you are whenever i uh, happen to receive feedback um uh, i find it i find it encouraging for that reason right right. Uh, it it tells me that our conversations are resonating it tells me that people are learning from our conversations and and i think perhaps most importantly that they're being challenged by Our, our, our conversations, uh, because I, in, in my experience as an educator, I've learned that um, people, at least students, my students, students tend to talk most about what challenges them, mm-hmm. about what bothers them. And so, you know, I hope that our conversations are bothersome in a good way. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so, well, you're right. That. Yeah, because we've had these ongoing questions that we've been raising, and I think they're appropriate for this show today and talking about history and historic preservation. You know, uh, Marcus, I, I'd like to say we both like to say that we need history because history gives us context, right? It, we, it gives us the bearing that we need to try to, to at least begin to understand or develop some understanding of where it is that we are. And it can give us some sense of where we might want to go. I keep coming back to the conversation that you and I had with Mitch Landrew. And the two questions I believe that we raised in that show and that we raised in the series of shows that we did um, last year around who are we and who do we wish to be, I think are appropriate for this conversation as well. And it's about context. So we need a sense of context to really provide some answers to those questions. And I come back to Mitch again and Mitch's statement of saying, and I was recently down in New Orleans and I thought about Mitch while I was there because I was able to see some of the work they've been doing that he addressed on the show when we talked to him, some of the works that they've been doing around history uh, in um, in New Orleans. But Mitch made the point about America. And then I think, Marcus, again, that this is appropriate as we approach the 250th anniversary of the nation's birth to think about, you know, who are we and who do we wish to be? And Mitch making that point that America is really the only country that is born out of an idea. And so you and I have been raising this question of saying, okay, how, how, well, are we doing in reaching that out that ideal, you know, and working towards that? Yeah, and, and what I would add to our, our ongoing conversation around those, well, I've lost count of the number of questions. What I think at this point, maybe five or five or six key questions that we we're, we're, we we've been asking now since the show has um has come back. We've added three or four questions to those original three questions, I believe. Um, in my in my view, all of these questions kind of take us back to. Uh, the issue of context, mm-hmm. right? How how do we contextualize 
or how do we situate ourselves within a larger story, a larger human story, a larger social story, a larger cultural story, a larger political story, um, in some cases, a larger religious story. Um, you know, that really, I think, is, 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 is a question that is beneath all of these questions that we've been posing on the show over, really over the past year uh, or more, right? Um, how, how do we locate ourselves within this a sort of larger story or a larger constellation of stories, all of which are sort of vying to be told, vying to be heard. Um, and, and that's why I think uh, uh, context or, or contextualization as a kind of practice becomes so important. And I think that I think that's one of the one of the um, one of the goals that our show can uh, can can assist with. Mm-hmm. Right. Helping people to understand the practice. I mean, it's one thing to talk about context in an abstract, abstract, uh, conceptual sense. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something different about talking uh, about context in a practical sense. Right. How do right. you practice contextualizing yourself, your body, your community, your community story? That's work. It is. <laughs> that's, that's, that's work. It, um, it you know. Not not everyone is, is interested in doing that work, right? Uh, which is a shame because I think that work is is really vital. It is it, especially especially given what's going on now, mm-hmm. and what has been going on um, at least in this country and now um, abroad. Um, you know, o- over the past uh, few years. So, right. yeah, this this issue of context is inescapable. I think. It is. So it, it raises for me, Marcus, when you made that point, I, there are two things, two thoughts I have here. You know, the work of the William Friday Fellowship. You know, we, we've been having those ongoing conversations with fellows who are a part of that program uh, for this past two years. And one of the things that Dr. Doster has been making in the conversations that she's had, one of the points that she's been making is that, it, you know, we, you need to take the time to actually develop a sense of context, right? You need to be in a reflective mode. We we don't always want to do that. People don't always have time to do that. It, it, so as I thought about this show today and the conversation that is going to unfold here as we get into it is to think about who's doing this well. I mean, if we look across the country, who is doing this this well? Are we doing it well as a community? How is Asheville, our other communities across North Carolina, how well are they, they developing a sense of context about who they are, where they want to go, what other communities across the state of North Carolina might be doing this well. Are we doing it well as a state? Are we doing it well as a country? So as a historian, I think about, we've already made the point that that history is important to developing a sense of context. I have been surprised in the short time that I've been in my new role as the Deputy Secretary for Archives and History here in North Carolina to discover that North Carolina has one of the most comprehensive public history programs in the country. A part of that work is the Division of State Historic Sites. There are 27 state historic sites across the state of North Carolina, and we have the pleasure of having with us today Michelle Lanier, who is the current director of North Carolina's Division of State Historic Sites. Michelle has a big job. It's a very big job. She has a wonderful team that she works with. But we want to take the time to welcome her here to the show. So glad that she has taken the time to just join us today to talk about the work of history and historic preservation across the state of North Carolina. So, Michelle, thank you for taking the time to join us today and welcome to the Waters and Harvest Show. It is such a pleasure and honor to be here. I'm 
been hearing about the show for several years now. And so I'm really honored. Thank you for having me. Well, this has been a long time coming, Michelle. So in full disclosure, let's let me just say that Michelle and I work together. Now, Michelle and I've known each other for a while. I'm going to ask Michelle to tell us a little bit about her background. But my work in Asheville, I mean, Michelle had a direct role in helping to facilitate that work. I think, you know, she might have not known how deep her her role in that was until most recently. But she connected me with folks back out in Asheville when I started my dissertation work that helped to facilitate that project. So, Michelle has been a part, a member of the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, but it, I guess it was Department of Cultural Resources when Michelle joined this 16 years ago, right? I think I'm getting that right. And Michelle will tell us a little, can you just tell us a little bit about your time with the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think whenever I tell my story, I have to honor my communities. I have to honor my ancestors. So the the date of which I started um, working for the department was 2006, but there were seeds that were planted before that. Um, I am the daughter of two ancestors, um, Margaret and James um, McCullers, and they both have roots in North Carolina. Uh, my mother's roots are in Goldsboro and Fayetteville and Johnston County, and my father's roots are in Wake County and uh, Franklin County and also uh, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. So we have um, deep, deep roots in North Carolina. And so for me, the journey to my role at historic sites started um, at my grandmother's kitchen table. My Maternal grandfather was a drill sergeant in the army and was and retired at Fort Jackson in Columbia. So I grew up under a battle flag that flew, a Confederate battle flag that flew over the um, Capitol building in Columbia, South Carolina. But I had the blessing of being in, in what I call an oasis space in my grandmother's community, Waverly. Um, Waverly is a historic Black community in Columbia, South Carolina, that's anchored by two HBCUs, Allen and Benedict. They're both mm -hmm. private HBCUs. And so I grew up around Black folks of all different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, some people were working poor, living very precarious lives. Um, I remember seeing Vietnam veterans coming to the house, you know, for a meal or some support. I grew up with Fish Fry Fridays um, at my grandmother's house in 45s you know, Motown music and going to museums and having books around me and going to programs at the HBCUs and going to the black churches, whether it was Episcopal or Catholic or non-denominational or Baptist, we'd all be at different churches doing, doing different things. And so all of that, plus part of my childhood in Gullah community um, with my mother, who was an educator, a principal on Hilton Head Island, um, those two places are critical to my story of how I get to be a folklorist. So I, I heard the banter at the beginning of the show where you all were talking about historians and, and Dr. Harvey, I feel the same way. Um, <laughs> I, I work with historians. I, I have an ally. <laughs> I have an ally. 
I work with historians. I one of my vocations is as, as a public historian or a keeper of memory. But my training, my background, my calling, I am a folklorist. That's what my degree is. Um, that's my calling. It's a spiritual calling, and it's, but it's also my training. Um, and it's an interdisciplinary field, folklore. Um, we, you know, so I'm in the the same uh, professional family as Orno Hurston or Anna Julia Cooper, who uh, people know as being an early fem Black feminist, um, but she was also one of the founding members of the Folklore Society out of Hampton, what was then Institute. Mm -hmm. So um, as a folklorist, I'm interested in the, the stories that a community tells about itself, the cultural traditions, the material culture, um, the proxemics of how people live in space, how people hold space in their bodies and, and place and home in their mouths with their food and their language, music and um, spiritual beliefs and practices. All of this is under, um, you know, the umbrella of how I think about folklore. And one of the tools that I use is oral history. Um, and I'm a, so I'm a trained oral historian, been teaching at Duke University as an adjunct at the Center for Documentary Studies for 22 years now. and um, Duke acquired a photographic collection that's very much resonant and relevant to your story, Dr. Waters, but um, Griffith Davis, Black um, photographer um, of note who uh, did work for the Foreign Service, uh, did photo essays for Life magazine, Ebony magazine. So the Griffith Davis papers are at um, the Rubenstein, which is a rare collection of um, all kinds of, you know, artifacts and papers and film and photographs at Duke. So I was brought in to help support an exhibit of some of his photographs and to help in support of a traveling exhibit. Griffith Davis's sister went to a black boarding school in Sedalia, North Carolina called Palmer Memorial Institute. And he wanted to demonstrate in 1947 in this photo essay that there were there was a whole continuum of how black people were living in the world and that there is, in fact, the black middle class, the black elite. And so when he went in 1947, um, there were, you know, black students from the diaspora, from East and West Africa, from all of the U.S., including Martin Luther King Jr.'s brother was a student at the time. And I also had relatives who had graduated from Palmer. So these photos became available and we needed oral history interviews mm -hmm. of people who had gone to Palmer. I did those interviews in 2004 or five. The exhibit started to roll out. Part of my research was going to Palmer Memorial Institute at the Charlotte Hawkins Brown Museum. And at the time, the site manager there was Tracy Burns, and the rest is history. That's <laughs> what led me into into the, the department. Into the department. Well, great. So, Marcus, you take I, it. I, 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 so I, I, yeah, I, I just have to say. Uh, well, first of all, I was I was excited before beforehand when I learned that uh, you would agree to be on the show, uh, Michelle. I'm even more excited now because I had no idea that um, you identify as a folklorist. Um, Zora Neale Hurston is one of the core foci in my own um, research. In fact, 
in a course that I'm teaching over at UNC Asheville, right before spring break, um, uh, students had to read three um, uh, folk narratives um, from Hurston's corpus, uh, namely Uncle Monday, Black Death, and Spunk. Um, and I and it, over the course of of that con of, of of discussing those those texts within the context of 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 um, of Black folk culture, um, I confess to them that you know had I not gone and had I not gone down the religious studies route, I would have absolutely been a folklorist. <laughs> so um, we we are I think kindred spirits um, in, in that regard. I mean I I cannot. I, I'm just, I, I continue to be amazed at how um, how much I am fed intellectually and culturally from Hurston's, her, from, from, the, from her corpus itself mm-hmm. and, for her, and from her very, very keen insight into um, the sort of contours of Black culture and, and particularly Black folk life. So um, I just really just sort of woke up with you uh, <laughs> mentioned uh, that I, I did want to, and I think you've already begun to touch on this, uh, Michelle, but um, in my experience, I don't know, uh, I don't, I don't want to speak from, from, from my brother, but in my experience, um, it is rare to encounter individuals who, who really have um, a sharp historical sensibility, much less a kind of passion um, for history, for studying history, for building a relationship to history. Um, and so I, I think it might be helpful for our listeners to hear a bit more from you about uh, what what helped to sort of create your own sense, of, because you clearly have a very developed sensibility, right, around history. So if you could speak a little bit more specifically to that. Absolutely. Well, I believe that, that we have Certainly, um, historians um, who are portfolioed and you know and, and have um, advanced degrees like Dr. Waters, but we also have vernacular historians, colloquial historians, community historians. And my grandmother was definitely that. Um, I remember her sitting us down at her kitchen table, and she was so- someone who believed grits were sacred. You know, grits in a in a bubble bath. She kind of felt would solve pretty much anything. But she would talk to us about the family stories. Um, she would name, she would call call out the names of ancestors. And she would give us family history in a way that I felt was a counter narrative to the, um, the hegemony in the air. When you grow up in Columbia, South Carolina, a state that in its curriculum, um, in its K through 12 kind of pedagogy, particularly in the 80s when I was in school, 80s and 90s, um, when I was in K through 12, it was very common to run into educators who spoke with pride about South Carolina being the first state to secede from the Union during the Civil War, who um, didn't complicate that narrative, who did not racialize that narrative, who didn't create an invitational opportunity for people who had been marginalized by neo-Confederacy, mm. um, you know, and putting whiteness at the center there, there, it felt like there was, um, there was no room at that table of memory for me. And in fact, it felt like a dangerous space. And my grandmother created a counter narrative at that table. Um, but I also had a mentor named Dr. Bernie Gallman, um, who is a medical doctor. And he ran a Saturday school in his doctor's office that had an Afrocentric approach. So 
I would go to Saturday school probably around the age of 14, learning about classical African civilizations. He took the youth to conferences. Um, I also remember being in the, the Black churches and hearing about history. Um, w- there's a culinary anthropologist who's now an ancestor named um, Berta Mae Grosvenor. She's my aunt. So I was exposed to her understanding of history through foodways. Um, she was brought in to you know, the team that made Beloved to teach Oprah how to make biscuits in an angry way. Um, almost like a dramaturge would work with an actor. So I was surrounded. I had this kind of constellation of educators. Um, There was Nana, Willie Mae Mickle, who had an eighth grade education, but she fed the community, loved the community. And then my grandmother, who had, you know, more of a college preparatory education, great migration story in Philadelphia at the girls' high school and studied Latin. And so I had this, this, just again, a constellation of black wise women and wise men um, and tradition bearers who always imparted this notion of a depth of, um, they encouraged the depth of intellectual curiosity, cultural curiosity, and they didn't see a distinction between the spirit realm and the intellectual realm. So that shows up in my work. Um, my master's thesis is called Homegoing, a Spirit-Centered Ethnography. Um, and so I'm always interested in being open about the fact that I feel this is sacred. I feel that it's important. We're called to um, kind of amplify voices um, in a way that feels like a, like holy work. Um, it's healing work. Um, I also, I think the fact that I went to Spelman uh, as a, an undergrad, oh. I was at Spelman um, in the 90s. I'm the la- I'm part of the last class that Janetta Cole graduated. Uh-huh. So she graduated with us is what we like mm-hmm. to say. So I remember seeing Bernice Reagan Johnson at our graduation. So hearing about Sweet Honey in the Rock and then Bernice Reagan Johnson's role in the Albany movement and the role of music um, in the mm-hmm. social justice movements of our people. Uh, I remember Stacey Abrams was my student government president, you know, so I was just completely it's a, it wasn't it wasn't just a constellation it was to, to change the metaphor. It was like an ocean of um, inspiration to look, always look deeper, think back, Sankofa, go back and mm-hmm. take, you know, yeah. before, as you move forward. Well, you're listening to The Waters and Harvey Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back in a moment. So again, welcome back to the show. This is The Waters and Harvey Show at Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're talking about historic preservation, and we're talking to Michelle Lanier, who is the director of North Carolina's Division of State Historic Sites. We have an interesting conversation. Thank you for staying with us. So, Marcus, we're going to go back to your question, the question that you just asked Michelle before the break about younger people. What are younger people doing? Are, are they becoming bearers of tradition? So, Michelle, let me just give you an opportunity to respond to my brother's yeah. question. The question of younger people, are they taking up the mantle to step into those roles of um, being tradition bearers? Absolutely. I think more so now than ever. I'm going to start naming some names. Pierce Freelon, you know, mm-hmm. you know, his um, ancestral father, um, Phil Freelon, Pierce 
is shining a huge light in the world um, across disciplines, music, creating space for young people. Um, I'm thinking about Angela Thorpe, who, you know, when I stepped out away from directing the African-American Heritage Commission, which I served as the inaugural executive director for that, and then stepped into this role with historic sites under the same department. Angela Thorpe is a powerhouse. Um, I tell her all the time, I know I birthed that baby, but she is taking care of it in ways I could not have imagined. She is an extraordinary thought leader. She's um, nationally recognized. Um, she's testified before Congress about the conditions of burial grounds, uh, African-American burial grounds. And that's just, she's working on a, Africa to Carolina, helping to think about marking places of disembarkation of um, our, our enslaved African ancestors. Um, I'm thinking about an, a visual artist named Claire Alexander, who I mentor. She and I have done some collaborative work together. Or Dare Coulter, um, who's a painter. We collaborated on the children's book, baby board book called My NC from A to Z. Mm -hmm. And proceeds from that project go back to through the department to help support future work. Um, I'm thinking about a, a young woman named Lex Kinney, uh, and she reaches out to me. Do you have time this week? Do you have time? Can we talk? I have increasingly been mentoring. Um, I think I'm kind of losing track of how many people who say, oh, Michelle, you're my mentor. But what I always say to them is, if I'm mentoring you, you need to go and find three to five people who will call you a mentor so that we can really dismantle this notion of one um, one marginalized person at a time, tapping one person at a time to replace. No, we need a whole, you know, a, a, just a whole cohort, a movement of people. So yes, people reach out to me all the, I think they'll say, I think that I'm doing what you do, or I think I'm starting, I'm interested in studying my people, or I'm interested in studying food. Uh, Gabriel, uh, Gabriel um, E.W. Carter, who was featured in um, High on the Hog on Netflix, who's yeah. a food you know, person. She's someone who I look to as a young tradition bearer, um, someone who's uh, maybe just a little younger than I am, Justin Robinson, who was a founding member of the Carolina Chocolate Drops. He is not only a musician and taught my daughter to play banjo and fiddle um, in the Black string tradition. But he also understands uh, botanical healing um, knowledge and is learning and teaching um, the ways of plant identification, reclaiming uh, that that root, you know, work that is about healing um, and going out into the woods and, and gathering plant medicine. Hmm. Um, there's there are people that we're working with at historic Stagville who are in their 20s and 30s, who are interested in reclaiming um, plantation spaces and having healing um, experiences using the arts. So I could go on and on. The young right. people are on fire. Yeah. So Michelle, with you bringing up, so you just named one of the state's historic sites, Stagville. Um, let's talk about uh, North the North Carolina Division of State Historic Sites. Um, what can you tell us about, you know, th this work? I mean, and 
And Michelle, you know, I'm new to the department I've, in this role. You know, you know that I've volunteered a lot of time over the course of the years to the department. So I've always been interested in what our department does. But let's talk specifically about state historic sites. I mean, all of these sites that we have across the state, I know those listening to us out here in Western North Carolina are going to know Vance and Thomas Wolf, but that's not all we have. Can you give us a broader picture of the North Carolina Division of State Historic Sites? Absolutely. We are stewards of um, narratives that go as far back as 13,000 years ago, particularly at sites like Town Creek Indian Mound, which is a site of a ceremonial um, center of of a community that we know that approximately 13,000 years ago, we we know that there were people there um, and for, for for a very long time. And um, we consider that place today to be a space that we offer up as um, really a gathering place for people of all different tribal um, identities. We're really proud to be in a state that has um, the largest American Indian population east east of the Mississippi, um, with eight state recognized tribes. And I think we might be getting more soon. Catawba down in South Carolina also have a relationship with us. And then, of course, the federally recognized Tuscarora up in New York has a mm-hmm. relationship with us. And increasingly, we've been focusing on um, growing healthy, strong, sustained, um, compelling relationships with, with tri- living tribal members. I think there's this narrative of genocide and the erasure of Native American people. And North Carolina has living tribal communities, um, Lumbee and Halawasaponi um, and Wakamasuan uh, and Cherokee. We, we want to work with all of them um, to tell the stories in the ways that they see fit. fit. So I'll name another site, um, Historic Halifax in Halifax County, in fact, there's a sacred spring on that site called Magazine Spring. And we've been working with the Halawasa Pony Tribe. We've been working to clear it out because um, it was choked with vegetation. And we also understood because of the cultural sensitivity of that spring that the elders needed to be brought in to interact with every stage of whether it was archaeological evaluation, whether it was clearing out vegetation, we knew we needed to have those um, Halawasa Pony elders with us. Mm-hmm. And so they blessed, they actually spoke blessings. They had ceremony, they spoke in their language over the work before we did anything every single time. So that's, you know, Halifax. And we have, of course, there's 27 historic sites in North Carolina. Two of them are considered commission sites. So the, mm-hmm. the battleship and Triumph Palace. And then the other 25 are in my portfolio of work, ranging from the State Capitol, Roanoke Island Festival Park, North Carolina Transportation Museum, um, historic uh, Stagville, Somerset Place, historic Edenton, doing a lot of work with historic Edenton right now. Um, Some people may be familiar with the Harriet Jacobs story out of Edenton. So we invite people to come there and experience that um, story on the land. Um, I think it's important to recognize as we approach the 250th anniversary of the founding of our country um, that our historic sites are resources for thinking about the complexity of that moment. 
Um, we have approximately 200 people across the state that help us with these 25 sites. So a little understaffed. So that means we need um, <laughs> volunteers. We need our support group members. We need our youth docents. Um, and some of our sites are very small and some of them have thousands of acre, you know, of acreage like um, Bentonville Battlefield, largest battle to take place on North Carolina soil. And increasingly they're telling a story that's um, really powerfully transforming the way people understand that space. I think for years people thought Confederate leaning, but you know, my staff in, in, for years have been pushing against that. And now we're seeing black folks and, and tribal members, you know, Lumbee folks who are saying, wait, I have a story that connects to this site. The jazz great Thelonious Monk, his ancestors yeah. would have heard that battle. Um, yeah. Nat King Cole, Natalie Cole's ancestors would have heard that battle. My ancestors would have heard that battle. And so we're, we're really, we're, we're really reaching out in this kind of prismatic way of thinking about the multifaceted um, stories of, of what, I, what I like to say is what did the land witness? Mm -hmm. Who, whose feet did the land hold? Mm -hmm. um, what are the ecosystems of witness? So we're thinking also about land stewardship. We have old growth forests. We have um, habitats for native, you know, rare species. And so we recognize that, that longleaf pine is a descendant of a plant that was witness to my ancestors. And so therefore there's a relationship there as well. Um, we are definitely at a crossroads through um, the work of true inclusion. We are thinking deeply about how we can be more inclusive of the needs of people living with disabilities, of people who are English as second language, of Black narratives, of American Indian narratives, of women, of poor people. But how can we also be more collective in how we make decisions and curate? How can we cede power to community members to say, you know what, this is your opportunity to join in and, and tell the story through through your voice. So that's that's my you know, assessment of, or this is my story of historic sites. Yeah, this is fascinating, fascinating stuff, Michelle. And I'm, I'm thinking about several, several things that you just said. I'm thinking about the prismatic approach that you just described. Described. I'm thinking also about um, your very, I think, important and insightful question about, you know, what did the land itself witness? I think that is mm -hmm. a very um it's a very rigorous way to think about um history and historical memory i'm thinking also about i think the term you used was uh i think this is brilliantly put uh ecosystems of witness i believe is what it was is, is, is how you put it um and that leads me to um a question about um about um historic sites as sites of preservation Right. Um, so I guess my question would be, um, as as a non-historian, Darren, <laughs> you know, my, my question would be, Michelle, um, thinking about these historic sites of preservation, what exactly is being preserved? Right. I mean, given so so given that, you know, so you just made this point yeah. about um, the importance of a prismatic, inclusive communal approach. Right. Um, I made a point in previous shows about um, how so much of our experience as human beings is spun through story, is spun through the practice of story, um, which is fine. 
Uh, but what happens when one story comes into contact with another story that may be incompatible, right? So my question is just uh, about, you know, what is there is there kind of a, a politics of preservation, right? Mm-hmm. That is that is to the fore that you have to struggle with in, in your work, Michelle. And maybe you too, um, Darren. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and Michelle to kind of piggyback on um, Marcus's question, I would ask, and why has the state of North Carolina placed so much emphasis on this on this mm. process? Can you speak to that too? So absolutely. So what are we preserving? So first, I want to give us some more language. So some of the things that I'm referring to, the phrases, this is definitely part of the writing that I do. I wrote this article called "Rooted." And it was looking at um, a praxis that I use called womanist cartography that was in Southern cultures. So it's it's actually online, um, very easy to find. If you just look up rooted Michelle Lanier, it'll pop up under Southern cultures. So I've been really grappling with methodologies and and what are my what are my grounding what's my grounding praxis as we do this work, along with spirit centered ethnography, you know, prismatic approach. Um, a phrase that I also like to point to is this notion of disruptive narrative. So this idea that we are disrupting the canon, we're disrupting um, the master narratives by saying, wait, but but there was a, a poor person there, or there mm-hmm. was an otherly able person there, there was a Black person there, there was someone who is not considered to be, you know, a luminary um, who actually had a, a role to play in this moment? Um, or what about the people out, you know, in the the pine barrens who were, you know, bleeding the trees for turpentine? Their stories are important. And so, disruptive narratives um, are really important to me. It's important that we don't leave our visitors thinking that stories, the stories of the land and of the artifacts and of the buildings, are simple. Um, they need to leave with a sense of that something is complex. Um, I see a kind of to add more metaphors to metaphors, um, window and mirror approach. So that seeing our sites as a window into the story of a place, but also the window into the story of a people and a mirror. We should see humanity reflected back at, at you as well um, in, in kind of the full spectrum of what um, humanity can look like over time, whether it's in war in the times of war, in times of um, uplift, in times of creativity. Um, what we're preserving is text, story. So a an artifact, a building, it's a text. Someone wrote their story. They may not be literate in letters, but if I look at a slave dwelling at, you know, at, at, um, at Van's birthplace, that is a text. Someone built it. So what is what it how can I read it? What is the cipher that I need to understand? How can I decipher the text? Um, and I think that that's not that's work that goes on forever. Why is North Carolina a place where we have such depth of commitment to history? It's actually written into the state constitution to take care of our um, historical treasures. I also think that North Carolina is, is a crossroads place. It's it's before you get into the deep south. It's before you rise up into the mid-Atlantic. Um, it also has strong educational history. So you have people who are writing and writing and writing. Um, I also think there's something about the rivers. Um, we had this 
ecological highway system that was taking information and people up and down these rivers. So I think what you have is this perfect storm when you have, you know, Yoruba and Igbo, you know, people being brought from the continent of Africa and then all of these tribes and then the Celtic and the German and, you know, Quakers and all colliding um, this cataclysm of culture on a landscape that also stitched through with rivers. Mm -hmm. I think that's what you get is you get a place of story. All right, Michelle, and and I I really feel it speaks uh, it speaks a lot, or it says a lot about the state of North Carolina that these are public funded projects. Um, I was surprised um, in a recent uh, trip that I took to you and I've talked about this to Denver to to talk with some of my counterparts across the country to see that North Carolina really, I mean, has made a commitment to to support these, uh, the upkeep and the preservation of these sites through public funds. I mean, now there are other funds that are used uh, through support groups that raise funds to, to support individual sites, but it says a lot uh, about the state of North Carolina that there is such a public commitment to this. Um, and we want to grow that and, and strengthen that kind of public commitment. And I think about, you know, what, what would you say to the average person out there who would say to you, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, why should we travel across the state of North Carolina to tour these sites and visit these sites? Um, you know, what how would you respond to, to that basic and simple question? I think first I would say, um, let's look at what's happening in the world right now. Um, if you look at the news and what's happening in Ukraine, one of the things that you will note is that there are civilians who are covering their historic treasures with fireproof insulation, trying to protect it. Why would they go, why would they do that? Because whether it's a you know a natural feature that there's a story attached to, or a built um, built environment space, or an artifact, these are touchstones. For memory, these are touchstones for humanity. These are also, also fodder um, for the inspiration of building new worlds and future making. When you look at the story of Harriet Ann Jacobs, someone who hid in an attic for nearly seven years, and there are artists like Simone, Simone Yvette Lee, who's being honored at the Venice Biennale, or Chakwase Dyson, whose art has been seen as far away as um, Dubai, who are inspired by that story. Um, so it is a part of our treasure, um, and it is a part of whether you are just visiting North Carolina or you make North Carolina home or your ancestors made North Carolina home, you be, you have become a part of that story. Um, when people ask me, well, how can you go to a Civil War site or how can you go to a plantation site? And I say, how dare I not mm -hmm. go, go back and bear witness to what my ancestors survived? Um, I know everybody's not built for the intensity of those narratives. But we at Historic Sites really work to try our best to create a welcoming environment, a place where we can meet people where they are. Um, and that's hard work. So I really, really want to honor the frontline staff. They really mm -hmm. are frontline staff. They're on the front lines of the war over history. History has been weaponized against mm -hmm. people. Um, and, but history doesn't have to be weaponized. It can be a conduit of healing and wholeness mm -hmm. um, for people to be able to um, bridge and connect 
And so I'm very interested in um, the possibilities of what history can do um, when activated. Um, think about Polly Murray, the great Polly Murray, the documentary that just came out about her um, and uh, about about them and about you know the ways in which people are looking to the story of Polly Murray as inspiration. So yes, it's it's also an opportunity to go to see. Um, beautiful spaces. We have landscapes that are um, very fortifying just to be, you know, walk those grounds. There's so many reasons to go see our site. Well, thank you. And again, you're listening to the Waters and Harvey Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Stay tuned and Marcus and I'll be right back. This is the Waters and Harvey Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Thank you for being a part of this conversation, Marcus. This is a rich conversation around history, historical preservation. Um, Michelle, I think uh, Michelle Lanier is taking us on something of a tour of the state of North Carolina. I think a very rich tour. I want to turn it over to you, brother. We're, we're going to reach the end of the show really quickly, but this has been a, a very engaging conversation. But let me turn it back over to you because i know that you have a question yeah. that you want to kind of jump oh in. yeah and b- before that I-, I would just say uh, michelle you know i'm i'm not a north carolina native um i moved here uh 2013 um i was living in boston briefly um i moved to boston from Atlanta. i'm originally an ohio native um and you know upon moving here i, I just had no idea um, about the the richness of the state's history and i later learned that my own paternal family lineage has roots that go directly through uh, Henderson, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I have not yet traveled there, um, but I plan I plan to do that um, soon. And I think that part of what I'm hearing in your response to the question of why people should go to experience these sites has a lot to do with the practice of what I would call pilgrimage, yes. right? There, there's something Absolutely. about, there's something Absolutely. fortifying, there's something... Um, uh, nourishing. There's something maybe even transformative, transformative about allowing yourself to be pulled into the practice of pilgrimage within the state that you that you live. But yes. the question I think becomes: How do you incentivize people to do that? Right? Yes. But that's a different. Uh, that's a whole other no, uh, conversation. Yeah, I call it. Yeah. I, yeah, I just presented a conference on the healing, the healing potential of the sojourn, the healing sojourn. The sojourn. Yeah. 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 The sojourns. Yeah. Um, but um, I was when you said Ohio, I was waiting for it. I was like 10. I, I was waiting for you to say because I call it being Afro-Carolina. And so I knew you uh-huh. were part of the Afro-Carolina diaspora. I kind of have a special gift to be like, yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> and I and Ohio, I mean, Ohio, Oberlin Village in Raleigh, Ohio, uh-huh. the, you know, the radicalization of Abraham Galloway, who becomes one of the first black senators at, to serve in the um, state capitol. Ohio, uh, two of the men who were participated in the um, Harper's Ferry raid came out of North Carolina, but were radicalized in Ohio. Really? Um, the first black woman to get a bachelor's degree in the country, Mary Jane Patterson out of Raleigh, goes to Oberlin. One of the one of the top four to get a bachelor's degree, black women, Anna Julia Cooper, Oberlin. So Ohio and North mm-hmm. Carolina are very connected. Um, and a lot of it is around abolition. <laughs> and freedom wow. speaking. So yeah, so yeah, how do we do it? Well, you um I like to reach out to groups of people and bring families and you know collectives and say you, you all over here, let's go. 
Come on. Come <laughs> yeah. And let me be your chaperone. Let me be your host. So the answer is radical hospitality and love. Mm-hmm. Well, Michelle, we want to thank you for taking this time to join us. I mean, this has been a very rich conversation and it's the start of what I hope will be multiple conversations. Now, one of the things that it just so that our listeners know what will be coming down the pike is that I wanted to have the conversation with Michelle first as the director of state historic sites. And Michelle and I have talked about one of the things in my role that I want to do is really be an advocate for preservation across the state. I get to do that. It's a fun job to be in. And I also want to try to bring North Carolina to people who uh, don't always have the chance to go out and and visit these spaces that we're talking about today. So the next phase of this will be to begin conversations with some of the individual site managers and hearing some of the stories and some of the rich work that is really being done. And uh, Michelle, I, you know, Marcus and I've had Kimberly Floyd on the show before. So we've, you know, had this remarkable conversations with her, with the work she's been doing at Vance and, and, and the team there. We, uh, I'm looking forward to a conversation with the people out at Somerset Place. We've talked about Somerset Place, Marcus. We've already talked about this space and Stagville. I have been amazed, but I know that there, there are sites that are you you love, you have a passion, Michelle, for each of these sites. But I'm, you know, I'm gonna be remiss that we've got five minutes here. Just if just real quickly, if you can tell us a little bit about one site, you've mentioned it already, Charlotte Hawkins Brown and Palmer yeah. Institute. Yeah. Can you just tell us just a little bit more for our listeners about Charlotte Hawkins Brown? Well, Marcus um mentioned Henderson. A black woman born in Henderson, um, Charlotte Hawkins Brown. Her family goes to Boston. Marcus mentioned Boston. She went to Boston too. And while she was in Cambridge, was um, she was called to and inspired to go back to the South to teach her people. And she was 19 years old, 19. And she started a school with, the, with a blacksmith shop and the use of a church. Um, and she grew a campus that was modeled after the boarding schools in New England, um, but attracted students from the African diaspora. At one point, Emperor Haile Selassie sent his nephew to go to school there. And so um, students came from all different communities. Um, I had four relatives to go there. Um, and those students went on to be civic leaders uh, Congresswoman Alma Adams' first teaching job was at Palmer Memorial Institute. And so we are in a place where we need to revitalize that site. Um, the structures, um, the staff are, are, are emerging. We're getting a new, we're rebuilding a new team, but the structures are in dire, dire um, condition. And so we are um, ringing the alarm. We're raising awareness with the support of the department and um, and also even in the legislature. So you'll hear more about the Charlotte Hawkins Brown and our vision to make that museum space a community anchor for the black town that it's in. Called All right. City. Yes. All City. Right. Well, yeah. well, Michelle, thank you so much again. Marcus, you have any final thoughts here before we close out the show? But rich conversation. Uh, I'm, a lot of thoughts, but I would just say kind of selfishly that I'm I'm, I'm I am. Uh, uh, fascinated, Michelle, to learn more about this connection between um, Ohio and North Carolina around abolition. I, I, I was unaware of this, um, and this honestly, this is this is this is causing me to look at the state differently. Um, so, I'm excited to explore that further. 
Well, thank you, uh, Michelle, for being here. And once again, thank you all for joining us for this show. And Marcus and I want to remind you again that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, and in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter or write us at whshow at bpr.org. And Marcus and I will look forward to being in conversation with you all again next time. Indeed. Take care.